Well, hi there, everybody. Welcome to Never Seen It. This is a podcast about movies that we haven't seen yet. My name is Betsy. I will be your host on this whimsical journey today. And with me, as always, is Trent. Greetings. Greetings, Trent. Today, we are taking it back to 1998 with a movie that unbeknownst to us, is celebrating its 25th anniversary this week. It was just a couple days ago as of the release of this recording. That wasn't intentional, but here we are. We are watching Pleasantville. Trent, I have seen this movie, but you have not. No. So what do you know about Pleasantville? So Pleasantville is a movie that I remember uh, a lot of marketing about. But I don't really think I knew anybody at the time who had seen it or had really an opinion about it. But up until, I think, a day or two ago, I don't think I actually have seen a trailer for this movie or any, like, content about this movie since 1998. Probably not. I seem to remember this movie being really prevalent, like, advertising-wise yeah. Yeah. when it was the 90s. Because we watched a lot of TV, so we would have seen sure, those things. Sure, sure. And I don't, I don't really think that Pleasantville has, like... It's, it's nobody's, like, favorite, favorite movie. I don't think so anyway, but I do remember it got a lot of buzz. I remember people actually liking it, and it was just a positive attitude coming out of it. But, like, what the messages of the movie and, like, why it's special, I really don't know, which is why we're kind of sitting down to watch it today. But we watched the, the original trailer here a, a day or two ago just to refresh my memory because, again, I haven't consumed anything about this movie whatsoever. I remembered that it was Tobey Maguire, and I remember Reese Witherspoon being somehow a part of it. I guess maybe she's his sister, and they go into a television show called Pleasantville, which is, I think, is it like a Leave it to Beaver-style 1950s sitcom? You're on the right track. I feel like that's, that's the premise here. And why they go into the TV show, what they're doing there, how they get out, I don't really know. But I know that the show and the movie isn't black and white. And I think as the progression of the movie goes, people start becoming more colorized. And I don't really know why they, they do that. I don't know if it's if Tommy McGuire brings in his, his newfangled 1998 mentalities into the 1950s and just brings people up, up to speed on whatever the attitudes are of the present. I don't, I don't really have a clue, so yeah. Okay, yeah, mostly what you're drawing from is genuinely from the trailer that we watched a couple of days ago. Yeah. I don't expect that you will have remembered a whole lot other than that. I know there's a ton of people in this movie you will definitely recognize apart from sure. those two, but it's one of those where they weren't that famous and neither was anybody else who was in it at the time. I mean, William H. Macy would, would have been the only one because he got a big following after Fargo, and that came out just a couple of years prior. We'll talk a lot about the context of this movie in 1998 and who mm-hmm. was and wasn't well-known at that time, but with that, I think we're just going to go do it. We're going to watch Pleasantville, and we'll be right back. From 1998, from 1958, that was Pleasantville. Trent, what did you think of that one? Oh my goodness! What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Golly gee, mister! Yeah, uh, that was really impressive. For 1998 to have a movie like this talking about the kinds of subject matter that even in 98, you would think that, oh yeah, we're all progressive now and things are better. It's 40 years on from 1958. No, we're still dealing with the shit that they're talking about in this movie now. Oh yeah, this movie is still relevant today, 25 years later. Yeah, it's really impressive to me that they they went there in a lot of different ways that we're going to get into here, but there's a lot of topics that I did not expect them to broach. There's some language in here that I did not expect them to use. And yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of blown away. Like, I did not expect to like this as much as I do. 
Well, I think this movie suffers from the problem a lot of movies in 1998 and other, you know, anything in the 90s, really. The trailer does not do this movie justice. It really doesn't. The trailer that we watched is like the trailer. And it looks like this wacky 90s movie. Right. And when you get into it, this is a beautiful movie. Like I was getting really emotional several times in this movie. I haven't watched this in a very long time. Sure. And I'm just like, Jesus, this movie is hitting me in a very different way than the last time I watched it. Like, shit, you could even, like, did this movie get nominated for Best Picture? Because it's kind of an Oscar baitish kind of a movie. It did not get nominated for Best Picture. It was up for three, but it was for a score and then two technical awards. I mean, the technical thing, I can see why. But you were talking about it. You were reading the behind the scenes things about this, facts yeah. about the movie. And this movie bombed, basically. Yeah. The, the budget and what the movie made did not line up. Yeah, they lost $10 million on this movie. And, I mean, h- how else do you sell this movie to an audience? Well, this movie had a problem. The Truman Show came out the same year as this movie. And it oh. came out first. Like that phenomenon that happens, kind of similar sort of movies, Mm -hmm. two of them come out at the same time. And The Truman Show came out earlier in the summer, and this came out in October. As we said, we are literally celebrating the 25th anniversary this week. This week. And they're both very similar on the surface level. They are 1950s. They revolve around kind of this meta television premise. Yeah. And the good old days. But where with The Truman Show, you've got this major star with Jim Carrey. Mm Mm-hmm where he is the one guy where he doesn't know what's going on and he goes through the change. And 1998, Jim Carrey was a giant, giant star. He was a star. huge star. Yeah, he had all these other movies come out prior to this. And of course, you're going to go and see the new Jim Carrey comedy. And then in the fall, you mm-hmm. get Pleasantville, which is full of basically nobodies. The biggest star in this movie at this time, Jeff Daniels. Yeah, he, and he gets second billing. He gets second billing and only because Tobey Maguire is the lead. Right. And Tobey Maguire was like, sort of famous in this time sort of like what else did he do i mean jesus i i know he was in fear and loathing in las vegas in a very minor role and that came out prior to this i think i i honestly i am having trouble summoning up any movies he did prior to this but that's because i haven't seen a lot of them but you're right that had come out he just was kind of a guy who was in a lot of like tv shows and movies he had been building a career he was getting famous Jeff Daniels at this point had been like, I think, nominated for at least one Oscar. He'd been in a number of things. Mm -hmm. He's the headliner, as it were. I suppose, but he's kind of a minor character in the movie. He is. And then you've got Joan Allen, who also was coming off of two Academy Award nominations, but not a household name. Mm -hmm. William H. Macy, certainly not a household name. Uh, He was starting to, I mentioned in the intro, he got very famous via Fargo. Which was like right before this movie. Right. This was not long after Fargo came out. Mm Mm-hmm. Then you've got Reese Witherspoon, who blew up in the following year. But up until yeah. this point, she's kind of not famous when this movie comes out. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to really think of another, like, bigger name person in this movie that people would have actually known. And it's, yeah, you're right. It's kind of nobody. And Paul Walker. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about all these people. <laughs> Paul Walker, three years before Fast and the Furious. Yeah. So you've got all these people who, at the time... We're really not famous. You've got what on the surface looks like just another version of the Truman Show. And like, think about the aesthetics of you putting out a trailer for this movie. A lot of it is in black and white. From an audience perspective, I don't want to go and see just another black and white movie. I don't want to have all this shit thrown at me. I want to have a good time. Or it's the thing of... Oh, it's some art house movie and I'm yeah. not interested in that. Right. And and yeah, so it bumped. It just did. Like it is really a hidden gem of a movie. Like I think so many people have probably forgotten this movie existed. Totally. When I was like, "Hey, this movie is streaming. We should watch this movie." You're like, "Okay. How how often do you think about Pleasantville though?" You know what? I would say more often than you might think. Not knowing anything about the premise of the movie, clearly I didn't, listening to the intro, but the idea of, like, doing the the technical things, like putting people in black and white and putting on the black and white makeup and just having this other world that you are sucked into, it's kind of like a video game premise. Like, there, there have been scenarios in video games I have played where you're in a virtual world and you're kind of stuck there. 
So I'm very familiar with this premise. So I think that's where I get this. Well, and I think uh, now that you brought that up, there are kind of jokes about that in the movie where the guy who runs the soda shop, when he is there working, Bud is always there and Bud does these things and he does those things. Mm -hmm. And if Bud's not there, he doesn't know what to do. And so he just stays in one spot wiping the counter until (laughs) it's worn through. Right. It's uh, it's what they call a sequence break. Like the scripting on the character got broken. So it just keeps on doing what it was doing prior. (laughs) (laughs) And he's just like, I don't understand. So I just did what I'm always doing. You were here to do the thing and I do the thing after you do the thing. So I kept on doing the first thing. But that's the whole movie is all about we live in this loop Mm -hmm. we have the same thing every single day it's all about conformity and familiarity and nothing changes and nothing no change nothing exists outside the boundaries of this town so all of these things again if you go watch the truman show this stuff all applies because it's the logic of a 1950s tv show we don't ever go anywhere we live in our house it's two different bubbles Mm -hmm. but there is actually a life outside of the Truman Show bubble that people are witnessing. Well, that it's we, just the, opposite the viewer, of get to see. Yeah, but it's just the opposite in this world. Nobody gets to see Pleasantville because it all happened in the way past. Right, and in this movie, the two stars, Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon, get pulled into it. Now, mm-hmm. I said when you're watching the trailer... Oh, it just looks like a little wacky 90s movie. And there is a certain element to that. And it's how they end up in the TV. And it's because at the beginning of the movie, these twins, brother and sister, they are fighting. They're completely different people. One is a nerd who watches too much TV. Mm -hmm. One is trying to be the cool girl who's like hitting on a guy and chain smoking. She's the slut. She's the slut. And they're fighting over the TV remote and it breaks. And who shows up at the door... But fucking Don a, Knotts. A magical TV repairman. I fucking love that. Don Knotts is one of those underrated comedic actors, in my opinion. I have seen a good amount of his his like older stuff, if you can believe. I think I've seen more Don Knotts movies than you have. You definitely have. And that's weird. I've seen like the Apple Dumpling Gang. Right. And as far as like his movies go, that's kind of it outside <laughs> of this one. Uh, it's uh, The Incredible Mr. Limpet is, is really good. I've never watched that. Man, yeah, I've, I've probably seen that three times. It's really good. <laughs> he's one of those guys who is an iconic person from 1950s TV. So right. he's absolutely perfect for this role. And I'll tell you this. The, the actor that they wanted for this role was not Don Knotts. They wanted Dick Van Dyke. Who also would have been perfect. They picked somebody. They were mm-hmm. looking for people who fit the mold of 1950s television stars. Right. And yes, you would think of Dick Van Dyke, but I would have probably chosen Don Knotts simply because he went through the transition from black and white to color on the same show. The Andy Griffith show started in black and white. And I think in the somewhere in the 60s, they changed it over to color and be, it became kind of a different show. Versus, That's what a lot of people said. Versus Dick Van Dyke, which was always in black and I white. I think it was always in black and white, yeah. That sounds right, but I can, I cannot confirm. Sorry if we are mistaken. <laughs> but still, I, I think that's a perfect choice for this role. And he's just this goofy old man who smiles and he has the Don Knotts charm that everybody who knows who he is is familiar with. Yeah. And this was his last on-screen movie. Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of beautiful like bookends where all these people are the new stars are in kind of their first major roles. Yeah. And then he's at the end of his career. It's just this beautiful way it lined up. It, it was perfect. Yeah. But yeah, he shows up and gives them a magical TV remote that sucks them into the TV. And I love how they just look at each other and like, we didn't call a TV repairman. Well, by golly, aren't you lucky I'm here then. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no real rhyme or reason to it other than. No, you don't need it. He is a magical magical figure who knows all about Pleasantville and he says well you are a true fan and you deserve time in the Pleasantville sets you know experience and whatever you right. want to call it right and they don't really get into why he chose them other than the fact that Toby McGuire was a big fan he knows everything about this show yeah and we haven't really talked that much about why Toby McGuire is a fan of this of this show And I think it's because, you know, in the 90s, the big topic of conversation on the news and just, hey, in in our own lives, at least my life anyway, was divorce. 
a lot of families were getting broken up by divorce for a lot of different reasons, but it was a big thing. Like that's when the studies of all these different marriages saying, yeah, 50% of marriages are ending in divorce in, in the, in the late nineties. And it was a very prescient thing for them to really t- t- to talk about. And Toby McGuire's character is looking back on this 1950 show where everything is perfect and all the um, parents stay together and there's no strife. And he's internalizing a lot of that. And he, in the one of the opening scenes, he's even turning up the volume literally on the TV to drown out what's happening in the background with his mom talking to his father. Oh yeah, in the 90s you had the AIDS crisis, you had the war at the beginning of the 90s that America was heavily involved in, you've got divorce. They have a sequence in the movie where all the teachers are telling the kids, like, well, the job market's terrible and you're you're not going to get a job, and global warming, and also sex and disease, and everything is terrible. All this dystopian stuff that is just surrounding kids that are in high school at this time. And it's about our time too. 1999 is when we entered high school. Yep. And meanwhile, his mom is on the phone with his absent father saying, you know, you're supposed to come and see them. This is your weekend. This is your weekend. I'm going to go off and fuck my new boyfriend. Yeah. So he's got a shit life and everybody around him is telling him what a terrible place the world is. Yeah, so he gets sucked, not quite literally yet. (laughs) Not yet. He gets sucked into this TV show on TV time, on the TV time show, not TV land. The TV time network. Not TV land yet. (laughs) TV time. That's where his mental state is anyway. Yeah, it makes him feel good. It's his comfort show. Totally, Like, I think people now more than ever understand having a comfort TV show. That is a total thing that people have latched onto and accepted as just a normalcy. Like, people who watch The Office and Friends. Over and and over again. Over and over and over. Why watch something new when I could watch the Mm -hmm. same thing? Because it gets me away from my life and my situation and makes me feel good. I don't want to be challenged uh, with something new. I don't want to get to know these new any new characters. I don't want to see these characters go through anything like that's, that's difficult to understand or anything like that. I want my comfort food. It's predictable and feels good to just, again, it's that cycle of normalcy. Yeah. Like, this is what I do, and I know what's going to happen on that show, and it never changes, and it makes me feel okay. Yeah, and Toby's gotten to the point where he knows all the dialogue. He knows what's going to happen. He knows everything about everybody. He knows all the actors, the Mm -hmm. characters, what episode we're on. So when they get absorbed and he goes... Oh, is that the episode we're in? He knows right. exactly the spot they are we're in the, in the story. Timeline, yeah, and you could say the same things about Reese Witherspoon. She's acting out by, you know, being the slutty teen and not doing her homework, not really trying to excel at anything and get into college because they talk about that at the end of the movie. So that's her way of acting out. She is predictably different in this context. She hates it here and she doesn't fit in. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he is like, I can tell you exactly what to do and how to be. And it's all about conformity. And he understands all these characters like, oh, no, you shouldn't give give me the cookies. You should you should give it over to this other guy because you're meant to do this and this and that. Those are his cookies. But the whole idea of the movie, just to get back on track here, is change it is of evolution like having people change their minds and desire to do something different yeah they become the catalyst for change (laughs) the way it starts of course is she fucks paul walker in a car right and he's like i'm sick i have to go home because he has an erection something is wrong with me (laughs) no that's supposed to happen right and when he starts telling people this and they just have any sort of experience outside of the normal. Right. They hear about something. Out, what's outside of Pleasantville? What's this book? The books are blank. There's no art. There's no color. There's no questioning. There's no mm-hmm. music that changes. And it's just this spark. It just, it's an infection. It's an it infection. It starts spreading around. Like I love the scene with Paul Walker and all of his buddies kind of huddling around. And, you know, it's kind of, it, it is a high school thing where... Hey, you have your first time. You want to tell all your buddies. <laughs> They're talking shop. And it's yeah. just, you guys will not believe what happened to me last night. And I love the reaction after the fact because the coach comes in. Says, okay, okay, guys, we need to get get back to, uh, to practicing here. And... They all miss their shots because they're all thinking about it. Well, and even before that, yeah. like when Toby says, 
you know, it's not a really good time. You shouldn't ask her out. And yeah. he experiences a feeling he's never had of like disappointment and uh, and just anger. So, or it's just something different something than what he's different. expecting. And he throws the basketball and it misses and everybody backs away from the rolling ball. Like it's- They're all like, scared. Like they're, I don't know what that is. <laughs> what is happening? I'm so confused. Right. And so it just starts really slowly. And you know, the first time uh, Paul Walker- is going away in his post-coital glow Mm -hmm. and he sees a single red rose. And, you know, red is like the primary color, the color of desire, the color of love. I saw American Beauty. I know what that's about. (laughs) (laughs) And it starts so small. And then as people start talking to each other and getting different ideas, it expands and expands and expands. And of course, it all starts with the young people. Yes. Because young people have more open minds than all these other fuckers who are stuck in their rut. And, they, they, and they've been stuck in their rut for decades. They have the capacity for new things and change. Right. And by the end of the movie, it literally becomes two camps of people. And yeah. the other camp, listen, we won't get fully into it, but it's all the old white men. Yes. Who do not understand what is happening and why it's happening to them and why me and I'm just lost. Yeah, and we'll get way into that later <laughs> on. But I, I, I love how it is slowly and gradually just infecting everybody with, and it's all different things. I mean, for some people, it's sex. For some people, it's music and art. And I mean, for lack of a better word, love. Yeah. I mean, between the Jeff Daniels character and the mom character, them coming together, they spend the night together in the in the soda shop. They, they don't really do anything. She's just sleeping on top of him. But by the time they wake up uh, together, they're both in color. Yeah, the whole place has changed. Yeah. Yeah, it's just even like metaphorical, like love of life. Totally. Like anything outside what they have ever experienced. It's new and exciting and different. And they don't want to change back. And the person that stands out is Joan Allen because she's the mom Mm -hmm. and she's the only adult up to a certain point. She's the first one. She is the first one. And it almost happens like by accident. Mm -hmm. She sees what's going on because she's the boring housewife. Right. But she's like, oh, you mean there's something happening? And she has a conversation with her daughter about sex. Her daughter right. explains to her what sex is, how it works. And when she gives herself an orgasm, she makes a tree set on fire, which is right. one of the most insane moments of the entire movie. <laughs> That's why I came back <laughs> from from a uh, break uh, with that little line. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> That's just a great scene. But yeah, she's the first one that is even open to the idea that something could be different. And contextually, if you look at, you know, 50s housewives, they're the ones who are like the most repressed and the most stuck in the rut. So for her to be the first adult to be like, okay, maybe the world can and should change. But she's still feeling all the feelings that she was before. Like she feels shame. Like she cannot even show her literal face to her husband in their own home. Yeah. Because she knows what that repression actually feels like and she doesn't want to go back to that. Oh yeah, this is such a deep metaphor that you could apply to literally the 1950s, to the 90s, to any generation that has overcome like dramatic changes Mm -hmm. socially, politically, emotionally. There is so much you can read in contextually, which is why I said this movie is relevant today. It's fucking deep. Anytime there is a new generation trying to change things, it's Mm -hmm. hard. Like, we are now at the age and the place in our lives where we are seeing young people. Right. And yes, we're the old people. They're the young people. Joan Allen is 40 in this movie. She says she's 40. I just turned 39, (laughs) goddammit. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so we're looking at what teenagers and kids and people, and I have no fucking clue. No. I have officially crossed the threshold where I don't know what is going on with young people. No, no, I don't have a clue. And it's just going to get worse as I get older. Now, Mm -hmm. we have the benefit of social media and the internet, and we at least have a vague idea of like, here's a thing they're talking about or a way they are speaking. I don't understand it. I'm aware of it. It's all from the outside and and like other people. I, I follow a couple of people on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, where they are middle school teachers and they bring, okay, guys, this is what my kids today brought me as projects. Like, let me show you their like PowerPoint presentation over this project. And it's just, 
all of these different words and sayings that do not apply to the thing that they're actually doing the report on. It's ridiculous, but it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. What they're saying. But we also can respect that we don't get to rule the world forever. Totally. I don't want to rule the world forever. Sometimes I look at that and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, kid, but I have hope for the future. Exactly. <laughs> like Betsy and I were at the grocery store the other day and like the kid who was doing our checkout at, at, at the front, like you could see, okay, they have colored hair. They are speaking in a way that makes me think, okay, maybe you're not just the, the typical straight white male that... Uh, is expected around, especially around where we live, and you are out and you're proud in public, and that's fantastic. I love that. Yeah, be you. So to bring it back to the movie, that's Joan Allen, is she is kind of actually paying attention to what's happening mm-hmm. and agrees with it, but she doesn't know how to get out of her own rut, and mm-hmm. she feels shame and confusion, and it's not until she meets a like-minded soul in Jeff Daniels yeah. that she actually just, you know, Bursts into flames herself, if you will, well, metaphorically. Well, and you also said, you just said that they meet. No, no. I feel like they have a pre-existing relationship because when Jeff Daniels comes to the house early on, when he reveals to Tobey Maguire, I, I, I closed the, the shop all by myself. It, I'm so proud. <laughs> it was so exciting. You left and I didn't know what to do, but and, that's what I did. But he sees the mom in the background. Oh, hi, Betty. And there's the connection well, there. Well, it's it's the initial spark where I don't think he ever thought to look at her before. So he's never seen her. Like, he's met well, her. He knows know her. They know each other. But he's never seen her. Maybe. There is a difference. There's a spark there. Ex- yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's not until he does something outside of the norm. And it just keeps expanding and expanding mm-hmm. and expanding. And even... For the people who don't agree with this, Tobey Maguire, by the end of the movie, is able to bring it out of them Mm -hmm. because he explains to them the place isn't changing, the people are changing. But they're not really changing because it was inside of them the whole time. Yeah. I'm just, it's just the events around them are bringing it out. And yeah, it's very slow at first, and then it just starts rolling down the hill and it gets very different like the last third it takes a turn into some really like dark really places. dark stuff yeah and we might as well just talk about that like they're getting to the point where they're saying the phrase and they're putting up the signs no colors now and by it, golly it has a different context yeah. in this movie but you know what they mean by that totally and then you've got a character whose name is literally whitey yep who is a belligerent little shit who is yeah. accosting women on the street. Well, he's the guy that Toby's girlfriend was supposed to give the cookies Those to, were right? his cookies. Those were his cookies. <laughs> and you could even say, like, replace the word cookies with something else. And you, oh, cookies. You, you could go down that road. You mean nookie? <laughs> something like that. I, I know Limp Biscuit. <laughs> I know what they're saying. But. Whitey shows up, and that's a strange thing I never thought I would say. Whitey shows up in their convertible saying, hey, everybody needs to come down to the town hall. But I figured you were going to be there because you're still black and white like the rest of us. I didn't think that you would be out here with your colored girlfriend. Jesus Christ. They Again, they just come right out and say it. Yeah, contextually... You're hearing what they're saying and you know what they mean, but also you, the viewer, is hearing what they're saying and you know what they mean. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like the signs for the meeting says, for all true citizens of Pleasantville. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And there's very dramatic juxtaposing scenes where you've got very angry people in black and white and you've got young people who are scared and excited and challenged by the world in color. Yep. And these two forces are butting heads. And it completely makes sense because that's how the world is. I mean, as long as we're here, there's another movie that you and I have both watched and read the book, I'm sure, that the court scene later on in the movie is heavily, heavily based on. Oh, you mean To Kill a Mockingbird? To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Because in that scene, you have the separated people. We have all of the, uh, let's say, not white people up at the top. And you have the other people down at the bottom. And of course, the people who the person who was on trial is not white. And it's an unjust situation. Exactly. Because they have no representation. Because in Pleasantville, apparently you don't need a lawyer. No, why would you ever need a lawyer? I don't think anyone in this town is a lawyer. Also, the mayor has the ability to put people on trial. Yeah, this is, this is a kangaroo court if I've ever seen one. But it backfires because, of course, all he manages to do is 
Toby makes his big dramatic speech at the yes, end, yes. and everybody gets on his side whether they like it or not, mm-hmm. because they just feel it inside of them, yep. and it bursts forth. Speaking of bursting forth, uh, when it, the, when the rain is happening and he goes outside of that little gazebo thing and he's like looking towards the sky and putting his arms out, that was not supposed to be a Shawshank uh, reference, by the way. No. <laughs> the filmmakers saw the reaction to it after the fact and they said, oh, actually, no, that was not supposed to be a reference to Shawshank. Like, it, this is, th- that's my idea. It's just remarkably similar. It, yeah, it just happened to look identical. And it is one of those shots that they use in a lot of montages. In montages and in the trailer, too. Yeah, if you've seen montages of movies, yeah. if they pull anything out of Pleasantville, it is that shot. And you probably don't even realize that's what you're seeing. Totally. Well, and it's interesting because at this point, where they are, where the rain is happening, is mm-hmm. all in color, and he is still in black he's and white. He's the only one. But because he's in the rain, you can miss that completely, that he's in black and white. Yes. So since we're on this topic, let's talk about the technical nature of this movie Mm -hmm. this is just a phenomenal looking film for 1998 how they did this is amazing like i genuinely look at it going wait did they do it in color did they do it in black and white did they do green screen the only one i know for sure is when he is applying makeup to his mom Mm -hmm. instead of gray paint they used green paint So when he is wiping her cheek, it is bright green, and then they turned it gray in in post. Okay. So that is the only effect I know. But you've got so many scenes where there is one person in color, and everything around them is black and And white. And they're all interacting with each other, too. Yeah, and there's like... Your book is green, but the mm-hmm. rest of you is black and white. Or That's really hard to do. You're black and white and you're eating a red cherry. It is so impressive. When you put this in 1998, yep. so they did this movie, they made it on film, then they digitized the whole thing and did all of the black and white changes and effects. It was in color yep. originally, and then they made it black and white in post. And to date, in 1998, this movie had the most digital effects of any movie in history. Up to that point, yeah. It only only a year later got blasted out of the water by Star Wars. Yeah. Which, again, think about that. This movie came out a year before, not even a year, like months before Star Wars Phantom Menace. You're right. But yeah, this movie has more digital shots than any movie to date. And I just don't know. But it know. doesn't look like it, It doesn't though. look like it. Like, because it's just black and white and it's just color. Your, your brain is not thinking, oh, yeah, that's a bunch of, you know, post effects or post processing, whatever the fuck they did. No, it just looks like some people are in black and white. Some people are in color. Like, did you go through and hand paint the cells? Because that's how you would have had to do this. They yeah. could have made this movie in 1958, but it would have required somebody going in and hand painting Every single cell and every scene. Every frame. And I love to consider that that's how they did this because I would have believed it. If you told me that they made this movie and they did it that way, I'd buy it. But they were lucky enough to have the option of doing it digitally. And I'll tell you this. I mean, just watching the movie and as the, the gradual color starts to come out of people... It is really striking how vibrant the colors are when all you've been looking at is black and white. It's which, beautiful. Which is the emotional reaction that these people would have seeing this color because all they know is black and white. It's such an interesting concept too because the fact that they know what color is but they've never right, seen color. Right. Like when they get upset and they're like, so and so's door is blue and he says, it's always it's been always blue. had a blue door. But he, he doesn't know that he has had a blue door but he does. Like nobody's ever seen the blue door. Right. It's always been there, but it's always been black and white. So the the concept of color, li- ex- quite literally, it is exists. A, a foreign concept to them. It exists for them because they say it. And like when all the ladies are having their little bridge night, all the ladies are talking about, oh, yeah, she's got a pink tongue and it'll go away. But like they all know what all that means, but it's just not prevalent in their lives enough to make it really a thing, which makes me think, okay, I wonder if this kind of thing has happened in the past because it's only old people who are talking about color. Adults. Like you mean in Pleasantville? Yeah. So I feel like maybe in this world, there was an infection of color at one time and they they made it go away. I they can't... implemented the Chamber of Commerce to get rid of the color and they passed their decrees to make it all go away. But now it's creeping back. 
I don't think, I think you're reading into that a little bit. I am. But I could see that it would be possible. Like, I will give you that I believe fully that that is something they would do in this place. Where I mean, they did. Anything that was different, we're just going to stifle it. Yeah. Like, when Tobey Maguire at the beginning is trying to keep things on track, and right. the guy at the shop, Bill, he says, oh, I didn't know what to do. And he's like, well, maybe just don't think about it. And he said, okay, I'll try that. Okay. Everybody is just really nimble and flexible about their own inner feelings. Like if they're told just do it differently, they go, okay, and they move on. (laughs) And they don't think about it anymore. They just do what they're told. And that's this whole movie is everybody's just doing what they are expected to do and Mm -hmm. what they're told. And in the context of a scripted television show or Mm -hmm. a video game where it's a predictable pattern. Yeah. You know, that's fucking brilliant. Like this, this movie does not get enough credit. You're right. For being as good as it actually is. I'm just sitting here like kind of marveling at how much I really like this movie. And like, it's, it's really surprising. Because, again, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, you got a couple of comedic actors in Jeff Daniels, number one. And, you know, Tobey Maguire, he has done quite a bit of, like, the aw shucks kind of a thing. Like, we we did Spidey Sunday. We watched all of the <laughs> Spider-Man movies. By the way, his last name is Parker in this movie. Yeah. God damn it. The P on his sweater is not for Pleasantville. It's for Peter Parker. Peter Parker. Because <laughs> I'm sure that was one of his next things. He was probably in pre-production at this point. Yeah. It didn't, or at least talking. Because those movies in 2001 took a lot longer to make. Right. So that all being said, I I do I did expect this to be funny. Uh, I kind of thought they were gonna poke more fun at like the 1950s nature and maybe have William H Macy, another comedic actor, but in a very dry sense. Maybe they were gonna have his character do more, which he does. His scene after his wife leaves. Coming home, doing his normal thing, putting his hat up, putting his briefcase down and saying, honey, I'm home. Honey, I'm home. And there's no response. And he goes into the kitchen and there's no dinner. Betsy, where's my dinner? Where's my dinner? Where's my dinner? And it's the way he says it. It's such an understated performance. Yeah. Where he's just like, I'm so confused. Right. I genuinely don't understand. And then to the extent he doesn't know how to feed himself. Like he's always like a dog. He is fed at certain times, very specific things. Also, it's not where's dinner, not where's our dinner, where's the dinner, where's- Or even where's my wife. Right. Where's my dinner. His concern is not that his wife is missing. It's that his dinner is missing. His dinner. That's my point. His (laughs) dinner. And yeah, he is very, very- confused and slow to change and he's like walking in the rain because he's like i don't know what the rain is and my food's gone and my wife's gone i don't understand what's happening so he's walking in the rain and he goes to the bowling alley it's the only safe space because good god this is just an episode of the flintstones for fuck's sake (laughs) so he retreats into his white male dominant uh thing and he goes in there and just says one word rain (laughs) it's raining it's not supposed to rain it never rains and yeah it's a high of 72 a low of 72 it's another beautiful day another beautiful day why do we even have a weatherman the children in this school don't know what rain is because they're like what what's happening what's happening and they're freaking out and hiding under the gazebo because Mm -hmm. they've never experienced this and the lightning going off like when he shows up at the house and he says honey i'm home and there's a lightning strike and he's like what is that what is going on right Yeah, there's a lot of, like, literal over-the-head metaphors like that in this movie, but they're so perfect. Like, in the context of the movie, they're just perfect. Yeah, and and going back to the the bowling alley thing, there's the shot of Big Big Bill, is that his name? Big Big Bob. Bob. Big Bob. Big Bob is up there with the camera kind of shooting upwards at him and the the big board of of all the scores in in the background, which, by the way, all of them are doing very, very well. They're great bowlers. Yeah. And Bob, as the mayor, is just saying, well, we got to do something about this. And he brings up one of the other guys and his wife was like, burn him with a fucking iron. She was ironing his shirt and she zoned out. She was just thinking her right. thoughts and stopped paying attention. And she left the iron on for too long and she scorched the back of his shirt. I, I suppose, yeah. It's That's just, what happened. It's just the shirt, not yeah, him. No, no, she didn't like attack him or something. <laughs> no, she was literally just in her own thoughts, yeah. which is unlike her because she's not allowed to have thinking, thinking. thoughts. 
<laughs> Thoughts and feelings. No, no, you right. little housewife. And because he's kind of like meek going up there and, and revealing his shirt. More shame. Yeah, it's the shame. But that's one of the best lines in the movie. He's like, but we're okay now because it hasn't come in here. This is a bowling alley. This is a safe space. Our this bowling is, alley. This is a safe space. It's one of the best lines in the it movie. Is, it is. Because there's all this change going around, but not in here, by golly. <laughs> and, okay, I want to get into just, this is the 1950s. This is the typical, like, conservative white male patriarchy that everybody was used to in the 1950s and all these other interlopers coming in to try to fuck things up for them. Well... Yeah, that is kind of what happens. And all of these guys come together and try to fucking legislate away the things they don't like. Well, first they start like burning books and smashing things. That too. They get really angry. Like their reaction is fear and fear turns to anger. And that's how they go like, well, that's not the way to proceed. So let's legislate the hell out of this instead. Yeah, like after the 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 naked painting on the on the window, after that store is trashed, they start burning the books, and then the decree comes out saying, "Okay, we're closing the library. You cannot have any bed that is wider than a than a single. Uh, you cannot make any changes to the school curriculum, which again, very present to this day. Uh, you cannot have any kind of paint that is not pre-approved. There's no rock music." And no umbrellas. You cannot plan for inclement weather because there is no inclement weather, goddammit. It's don't look up. You know, it's right there, it but is. just don't don't pay attention to it. Yep. Ignore it. Stay inside. Yeah. The, the rain isn't real. Yeah. You're crazy if don't you think rain is real. Don't believe your lying eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just stifling creativity and first amendment shit and like free thought and freedom of speech and and even at the trial jeff daniels says in his like meek way saying oh i i I guess i could just not use as many colors and maybe i could just do like you could pre-approve the colors i just i just really want to paint well yeah he makes graffiti effectively a public work of art on the side of the police station right which is, is fantastic, That by is the representative way. of all the things that are happening. It is his own expression of the events in it, Pleasantville. It's, it's a protest mural. And, of course, he gets put on trial for it, and his response is, well, maybe I can conform, like, but don't, don't make me stop painting because right. it's the only thing that makes him happy. Right. And that's fucking devastating. It is. It's really sad. Like, I, I want to go back to the actors in this movie because Jeff Daniels, Joan Allen... William H. Macy, they are giving fucking beautiful, understated performances in this movie where you are playing somebody who only knows one way of life and you're trying to expand that and become your true self and you don't really know what to do with it and change is really hard, but you're also like a sensitive person. Like even William H. Macy, he's not a bad guy. No. He conforms because he wants to fit in. He wants to have the little wife and the white picket fence and because that's what he's supposed to have because that's what he's been told he's supposed to be and want and do and feel right and when he sees his wife at the end of the movie he wants her back because he doesn't even realize he feels this way because he loves her he actually does love her and he never says the words but you know the viewer that when he taps into that love that's what turns him into the colorized version of william h macy right And so he wants her back because he misses her and he loves her and he doesn't even realize it until she's gone. And in the same scene, the same vein, you have the mayor guy up at the front. Toby McGuire is coming up there and say, no, you don't have to have it like this. Everybody has something inside of them that they want to have brought out. And I don't remember exactly what the line was, but... The only time in the in, in the course of the movie do you actually see someone change from black and white to color on screen. The flood of color. The flood of color just comes into them. That is the only time they do it because otherwise it's a different scene. Or like when William H. Macy turns from black and white to color, Toby McGuire is in front of him and he gets out of the shot. Yeah, it's just like a wipe effect. Yes. But at no other time does that happen. And I think that is the most effective one because he's the most buttoned down, like nobody, nobody's going to be colored in my town, goddammit. Well, and it's really interesting with him. The reason he changes is because of his own anger and his feelings and stuff. He's not triggered because he wants to be. He's no. triggered because he's triggered. Right. Like, he's just like... 
fuck no, I don't like this. Make it stop. I yeah. hate it. Toby says, what do you want to do to me? I know you want to do something to me. Yeah, and it's interesting that that's what is the change. It's not always these, like, good feelings for right, people. Right. Like, the bully, Whitey, he starts seeing color when he gets punched in the face. Right, he when sees he, the red blood. Yeah, the anger triggers them. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting kind of concept when you, most everybody else is, it's joy and love and happiness, and these guys are changed because of anger and fear. Well, think about what was happening in the 1950s and 60s when, you know, integration started, when separate but equal was gotten away with and the Voting Rights Act came out. Not to get into a political thing, but there's a lot of people who are now living in this life. They're living in a post-civil rights era, and they don't like it. They have to live in that era. They're all in color themselves, but they're fighting against it. And again, there are so many understated things in this movie that are just fucking brilliant. That they don't say it. They don't have to say it, but it's there. Oh, yeah. It's like, you understand this metaphor. Like, we don't have to get into it, which is why you can apply it to other situations. It's not just that. Yes, that's the most obvious one because it's the 1950s. It's in black and white. It's white people getting very angry that your brain can make the connection. But there is other stuff, more modern things that you can apply that to as well. Totally. So to bring it back to the other actors in this movie, Reese Witherspoon is really prevalent in the beginning, and then she kind of gets put on the back burner as she sort of becomes, like, she starts changing the opposite way. Yeah. Because she was very, like, outspoken and, you know, like you said, a little bit slutty. She's been having sex with guys outside in the real world. Yeah, and she was figuring, oh, all these other girls are starting to have sex and they're turning into color. But I'm still black and white. I've had ten times more sex than all these other bitches. (laughs) But it's not until she's actually staying in and she stops fooling around and she starts just being aware of her own brain and her own thoughts. And she reads. She's like, why did you have to make reading trendy? Like, I I hate this. But she says at the beginning she, like, basically doesn't read. She was reading Huck Finn. She only got to a certain place and then she stopped reading it, Mm -hmm. which is why she doesn't know what happens at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. But later, when she's left to her own devices, she's staying in and she's becoming more conformist in that regard. And she says no to Paul Walker. Yeah, she's like, no, I'm studying. Get out of here. Get off my lawn, you weirdo. (laughs) And she puts on her glasses and she's like making this full transformation into Mary Sue. And then one morning she wakes up in color. And it's not because of the people around her. It's because of what happens inside of her again. Exactly. This is her true self. Like I was saying before with her like lashing out because of the divorce thing happening in her own home life. She is Mary Sue, but she doesn't know how to be that. She has to be around a bunch of other Mary Sues to really get there. Right. And then Toby Maguire, he turns the other way. He's really nerdy. And it's not right. until he like stands up for himself and stands mm-hmm. up for other people that he turns into the color version of himself. Yeah. And so they basically flip flop. And by the end, he's the one that wants to leave and she's the one that's going to stay. And that's a common trope in movies like this, where the person who is the most resistant to being in this situation yeah. is the one that's like, you know what? I like it here. I'm going to stay. This is my element. Yeah, I'm in my element now. I just didn't know I I had to get here. And then there's one performance that doesn't really get a whole lot of screen time, but it's Jane Kaczmarek, who is two years pre-Malcolm in the Middle. She plays David's mom. So she's at the very beginning, and she's at the very end of the movie. His his real mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's at the beginning on the phone, yelling at her ex-husband, saying, you're an asshole, you're supposed to come and hang out with your your kids, yeah, and fine, it, I'm and, going. And throwing it in his face that, yeah, I'm going to go and be with my, my boyfriend. Yeah, and at the end of the movie, she basically was on the way to her boyfriend and was like, what the fuck am I doing? Right. I don't know why I'm with this guy. Like this I'm guy's, 40 years old. Yeah, this guy's like, what would she say, eight years nine younger than- Nine years younger. Nine years younger it, than me. It, it makes, makes me, me feel, feel old. <laughs> And she comes home and she's crying. And because Tobey Maguire has had this whole experience, at the beginning, she's like off in the kitchen and he's ignoring her. Mm -hmm. He has had this experience with another mother and now he can appreciate his own mother more. And it's this really nice way to kind of end the movie where he didn't appreciate his own real mom and what she is going through. And he's not 
polite or tender or caring at all. He's literally trying to drown her out and get into his own little world. When, when she comes back, she's lamenting all of these different things saying, I thought this house and this marriage and this family was going to be the end all be all. I thought that I had the right house and the right job and the right everything else. Like this was going to be my perfect life. And Tommy is just sitting there saying, no, there isn't a set thing that you need to do. There isn't a, a perfect car or a perfect life or a perfect anything. You just got to take it as it comes. And it's going to be okay. Yeah. The very end is that scene. And then we cut back to Pleasantville with right. the other one. And because these two women are basically the same. They have left their husbands. And one of them is the very post that with David's mom. Yep. And she says, you know, this is my life now. The other one is still trying to figure it out. And she's got these two guys, mm -hmm. both of whom who love her. And it's left with this ambiguous ending where William H. Macy says, I don't know, but he's laughing. What's going to happen? I don't know. And that's great. Isn't that great? But then Jeff Daniels also says, I guess I don't know either. And we, the viewer... Also don't know. Right. Because they're going to figure it out. And that's the exciting thing. You don't know what's happening next. Yeah. That's it, life. It's a beautiful fucking movie. And there's so many things to appreciate about it. There really is. I, I cannot say enough good things about this. Okay. I think we've covered most of the major things, but I know you've still got some other things and I've got some smaller items I want to bring up briefly. What have you got, yeah, Trent? Ju just a few things here. Um, <laughs> I loved the spread like when they first get into pleasantville and the parents just keep on calling him hey you need to come and eat your breakfast eat your breakfast before you go to school the giant breakfast spread they had oh my god that is an obscene amount of food let's see we haven't had lunch yet i'm hungry <laughs> <laughs> pancakes and waffles and sausage Bacon and a ham steak and, and, and eggs all that stuff that's so much food why why would you do that i don't know like I don't really remember if there's been anything I've seen about what people ate in the 1950s if they had breakfast as their main, main meal like they do in Europe. Maybe. It is a comically large meal, though. <laughs> yes. Like the, the, the pile of waffles right in front of the shot and the mother coming over with the syrup and just pouring it on Dumping top. Dumping it. Just where she, the character, probably just never eats breakfast. No, she probably doesn't eat at all. Yeah. <laughs> she mentions like, oh yeah, all this uh, animal fat, I'm probably going to be sick or something. Well, and they don't make Toby eat. That's so weird. Like they're really emphatic where she's like, I'm not hungry. No, no, don't be silly. Sit down right. and eat. And she eats and he just stands there and shrugs because he's like, I don't, I don't know I don't, what to say. What, what I don't is know going what to on? do. What is going on? Uh, there is a, a, a specific shot I wanted to call out here. It is when it is in the middle of the night and Jeff Daniels is inside of his shop painting. And Joan Allen is out there in color herself, standing underneath a streetlight in front of a black and white shop. That shot right there was probably the best out of the entire movie. It looked, I mean, it's directly out of like a 1930s, 1940s movie. Well, and there's a lot of like Norman Rockwell kind of feelings about America and like painting and emotions oh, yeah. and artists. And yeah. it is a very artistic shot. Well, and she's even going inside to talk about the art with him. And he comes across, I don't know what the, what the artist is or what the painting is, but it's of the woman crying. He doesn't see it as the woman crying. He sees it as, oh, he, she's resting. Yeah, she's sleeping. But she comes in and says, no, she's crying. Yeah, and again, repressed housewife, she's going to notice that. Totally. Because someone who doesn't get to feel their feelings... Is coming in there to gonna, feel something. They're going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and one last thing. I had a question while we were watching this, and this is going to be a little crass, but I don't care. The girl who goes in to the doctor with her mother, by the way, goes into the doctor, and her mouth is starting to turn, you know, like the red and pink and the colors of a mouth. Is that a blowjob reference, Betsy? I mean, it could be. Like, we definitely saw some kids 69ing in that car. Because there <laughs> yeah. were feet going down and there were feet going up. And uh, they were going in opposite directions. And I don't know what that... There's all sorts of There's stuff happening ways at Lover's Lane. <laughs> so, once, once someone told them what sex was, right. they all started doing it. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe. Otherwise, it's just because it's an effective looking shot. I mean, 1998, this is before the whole Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky thing. Mm. Not yeah. a lot of people are making references to such a thing in movies. No, but it's also the thing that 
<laughs> in this scene, the the doctor and the mother, they just repress it. It'll go away. It'll just It'll go stop. away. You'll be fine. Yeah, it, you can hide it at least because it's in your mouth. Just keep your mouth shut, girl. <laughs> Put on lipstick. So yeah, I don't know if that was the intention or more so that it's just effective to have her go say ah and she has a pink tongue. Right. <laughs> uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on is the fact that there's a scene in in the beginning where they're at the soda shop Mm -hmm. and Reese Witherspoon goes to the bathroom and there is no toilet in the stall. This is actually a reference to the fact that in the 50s, they didn't show bathrooms on TV. There wasn't a toilet featured on television until an episode of Leave it to Beaver in 1957. I had to actually look this up because I knew that toilets were not featured on TV. They weren't allowed. They didn't even flush A toilet, like, showing it was one thing. To flush it was completely different. Like, everybody uses a toilet. Everybody knows what it does. But we were such prudes in the 1950s (laughs) that were like, no, no, no. Let's not show what the toilet actually does. Even though we all know what it does. We can't even look at it. That's just not appropriate conversation. Like, you're just looking at it. It's just there. You don't have to address it. You don't have to talk about it. But it's a funny joke in this movie. And if you don't know that information, it just seems like, oh, well, yeah, nobody has to go to the bathroom in Pleasantville because it's a TV show and we didn't see it. But if you take it to Uh that next level, Uh suddenly that joke becomes really fucking brilliant. That is a brilliant joke. It's so subtle, though. It is, but it's great. And if you don't know about, you know, what like the Hayes Code or like, like it's just the decency code. It's not even Hayes Code because I don't even think that really applied that much to TV. But they had their own, like, do's and don'ts on TV. Sure, they had standards and practices on both television and in movies. But on TV, the fact that they wouldn't even show a toilet. Right. Like, we can't possibly talk about the fact that your mother poops. (laughs) (laughs) Because, sorry, kids, she does. Yeah. All right, uh, the last thing I really wanted to bring up, because I'm talking to you, Trent, it would be really remiss of me to not mention the fact that at the end of the movie, they are able to leave Pleasantville. And the street sign for where they can go says Springfield. Yep. 12 miles. Yep. Which is obviously a reference to The Simpsons. Uh, I, I'm going to say no to that because, because Springfield, as The Simpsons' town name, was actually inspired by another thing. When they named Springfield in The Simpsons, they named it off of like a survey of like the most generic sounding town names. Everybody thinks that, oh, it's because there are more Springfields in the United States than any other town name. That's not true. There are a lot of them, but they wanted to have a, a generic enough sounding name for their town. I'm just, I get what you're saying, Trent, I'm just saying this entire movie is about a TV show in small-town America, and the end, they say Springfield. And in the 90s, when you say Springfield, small-town TV show, there's you, exactly one thing people are going to right. be thinking about. You're right. So I feel like it was an intentional choice. That's all I'm saying. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> well, and of course, they had a contest while they were making this movie that people could go to Pleasantville, Iowa, Like, in the beginning, they actually show a little star on South Dakota. There's no Pleasantville, South Dakota. There is a Springfield, South Dakota, though. There is a Springfield, South Dakota, but there is a Pleasantville, Iowa. And the prize winner was like, no, I don't want to go there. I'll take the cash take the cash. (laughs) Yeah, I've never been there, but it is, uh, I looked it up on the map. It is in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. It's like smack in the center of the state where the city is, where the capital is. But then you got to drive like an hour outside of the city (laughs) to bumblefuck nowhere. So, yeah, don't go. I don't I don't think I have no idea what's there. It might be a lovely town, but I feel like more likely it's a thousand people and there's nothing going on in Pleasantville, Iowa. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Trent, do you have any other closing remarks? Anything else you wanted to bring up before we wrap this one up? No, I think like the, the one other thing that I haven't mentioned yet was just the Je- the Jeff Daniels character and when he tells the story to Tommy McGuire saying, "You know what? The one thing I have to look forward to in my life is Christmas because I'm allowed to put up a decoration to to paint a thing on the front windows of my store." That is the one thing in my life that I have to look forward to and that is so depressing. It's a devastating sort of thought. Yeah, I think about it all year. Mm-hmm. It's your store, dude. 
do what you want, but it never even occurred to him that he could. So he goes the opposite, like the most extreme thing, to paint a naked portrait of his lover. Yeah, why not? Like, I, like, okay, now we're pushing the bounds of decency in this very small community. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but yeah, you, you repress somebody that long. That's what they're going to do. Definitely. But you mean just as a, as a talk about, you know, real depression, you got to have something to look forward to. You got to have something on the horizon that is going to make you happy. Oh, yeah. This movie is full of different themes that you can analyze the shit out of, which we have definitely we started. Just did. <laughs> but I feel like we are only scratching the surface. But because oh, yeah. we cannot talk forever, I am going to wrap this podcast up. If you have seen Pleasantville, we would love to hear from you. Email us, neverseenitpod at gmail.com. We got such an email from Blake. So if you had listened to our Sunshine episode a few weeks ago, Blake was the one who invited us to his birthday, and he gave us an email here about Sunshine and why he selected it for the mystery movie that we got to go and see. Hello, Betsy and Trent. This will be a long email. Apologies in advance. I chose Sunshine for a couple of reasons. One, it seems like even amongst cinephiles, this movie is still underseen, or worse yet, they haven't heard of it. Yeah, that's uh, that's us. We had not even heard of it. Well, I'd heard of it, but probably not since it came out. Pro- yeah, most likely. He continues, number two, whenever I think of the best experiences I've had in a movie theater, seeing Sunshine always comes up. Sometimes it's the first movie I think of, and I wanted to share that big screen experience with people. I have many rules for movie going. Some of these rules can be, you can be bad, but don't be boring. Another one of these rules is, don't insult my intelligence. Good rules. Those are excellent rules. I remember back when we first started this podcast, we covered Mank, which was an Oscar-nominated movie, and we both said, this movie is boring. You don't get to bore me when I'm paying to see your fucking movie. We said the same thing about Avatar The Way of Water. Yeah. Like, you kind of forgot to make a plot and make it interesting, dude. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. All right, Blake continues. Sunshine passes a couple of other rules I have for movie watching. One, show me something I've never seen before. Yep. Two, take me to a place I've never gone before. Yep. There are images and scenes in Sunshine that I haven't seen in any other movie, and this movie goes to a place I've never seen any other movie go to. Literally, into the sun. Not just the sun, into the sun. Into the sun. I don't think Danny Boyle is one of my favorite directors, but I'll give him credit where credit is due. Other than Train Spotting 2, he's never gone back to the same well twice. He's always done something different. Yeah, that is the only sequel that I'm familiar with that he has done. And that one was a very long time coming. And I still haven't watched it. Nope. I'll get there. Nope. Sorry. Sorry. I, I've only ever seen Train Spotting once, so. I feel like we should watch that more, but that's just me. Maybe. Maybe we will revisit. As far as his style goes, I'm a big fan. For better or worse, Danny Boyle usually just fucking goes for it. Sometimes he succeeds, sometimes he fails, but he's always true to himself and I've always admired that. I keep saying it, Danny Boyle has a style. Like, you can look at his movies and there's a lot of thematic elements Mm -hmm. as far as quick cuts and it's very frantic. And yeah, there's a lot of energy in the way he directs movies. His style can be too much for some, and I get it. Yeah. Like I said. Yep. But for me, I think he really understands the energy that editing can bring and the propulsion of images combined with music. And the final 20 minutes of sunshine when viewed through those lenses are not only indicative of that, they are just flat out electric. Yeah, and that was the thing that really turned me off of that movie. It wasn't bad, but it took me from really loving the movie to something where I am, Jesus, I am just being tossed about in this movie and they're they're not going to let me go. You felt overwhelmed and confused. Yeah. But I think if you watched it again, maybe you'd feel differently. If I knew that was going to be happening, maybe I could concentrate more and pay attention to it better. All right, we're coming to the end, guys. We promise. He said this was a long email. Yes. The alarm-type music-slash-score that plays over images of the black box getting closer and closer to the sun cut against images of the bomb lighting up. Cutting to the bomb going off, but the flames stop in front of Murphy so he can reach out and touch them. And the credits roll to a blisteringly loud electronic beat that sends you out into the night air on a complete high. Now that's a fucking ending. It was an ending. Boyle understands the feeling he can give the audience as they leave the building. For me, it's one of the most exhilarating things I've ever experienced in a theater. It's exactly what I want to see, feel, and experience if I'm watching a movie about being thrown into the sun. 
I'll never call Sunshine a masterpiece, but for me, it's what going to the movies is all about. From Blake. Thank you, Blake. Uh, I think the feelings, like if I'm really going to analyze this, the feelings I was having at the end of the movie was, okay, I had a grasp on the movie, I knew where it was going, but then I lost my grip and it just took me somewhere that I wasn't willing to go. If, you, if I'm really going to talk about it here. You didn't want to go and conform and be in, be in line I didn't and go wanna, along. I didn't want to let go and just let the movie envelop me. Yeah. Thank you, Blake, for saying that. Because, you know, when you have a mystery movie, mm-hmm. you would like to know why was this movie selected? And now we have our reason. Indeed. So I think we both enjoyed it. It's definitely one I would watch oh, hell again. Yeah. Hell yeah. And thanks again for inviting us to, to your thing. Yes. Thank you for that. And thank you for the email elaborating on that film. If you would like to be like Blake and Stephanie and Seth and all the people who are kind enough to send us emails. And if you would like to invite us to your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> you can email us neverseenapod at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So we're on a new platform. You can reach out to us in all of those different places. So send us an email. You can also share our content. We would also love if you would go to your podcast app of choice and read us five stars, write us a review on any of those platforms, share our content, anything to put us in front of more people so they find out about the show and give us a listen. But that is going to do it for Pleasantville. We have one more, our finale for 2023 of our Never Scream It series. We said it in the last episode, guys, we are doing The Exorcist, so you should definitely check out because that's going to be a big one. And then it's on to November. Isn't that yeah. crazy, Trent? That's the November is going to be crazy because we've already planned out all of our Wednesday episodes in the oh. month of November. Oh, are we doing and a it's series? Yet another fucking series, Betsy, to end to almost end out the year because, of course, December is going to be holiday movies. Oh, but it's going to be a fun one. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one. We'll tell people more about that on yeah. Sunday. You well, have to listen to The Exorcist well, to find out what that is. Right, listen to The Exorcist. We'll, we'll tease you what what our next series is going to be for the Wednesdays in November. Yes. Yeah, so look forward to all of those episodes. If you've made it this far, thank you as always for listening. Trent, thank you for being my co-host. Anytime. But until next time, folks, this has been another episode of Never Seen It. My name is Betsy. And my name is Trent. And golly gee, guys, we'll see you some other time. Bye-bye.